0: From the Gospel of John, Jesus breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. Christ is risen. Nice. If you weren't raised in a liturgical uh, church like I wasn't, um, that traditional greeting might catch you on your back heels, If you really wanna impress your friends or impress the cool kids, you could even say it in Greek. So there's gonna be a quiz after this. I want you to pick this up. You could say, Christos Anesti. You wanna try it? Christos Anesti. And then somebody would respond by saying, Alithos Anesti. Can you try it? Alithos Anesti. We'll try that during the exchanging of the piece and see if you still have it. Well, the reason that we're talking about Easter and the reason that we're still using the traditional Paschal greeting a full week after the fact? Well, there's a couple reasons. First, the gospel that Father Rodriguez just read picks up on the very same day as the events of last week, on Easter evening. And the second reason we're still using this greeting is uh, Eastertide, this season that we're in as the church, lasts a full 40 days from Easter until, uh, I think, the Ascension, actually. And I worry that the church has largely lost sight of this great 40 day feast after a 40 day Lent because the church is really good at Lent, right? Like, if you're in Lent, you know you're in Lent. It's purple, no flowers. Um, you know, we, we typically have some sort of fast that we've done. But we're, we're not always so great at living into the full 40 days of Easter. Sometimes we kind of had this magnificent Easter Sunday, which we had here. I hope you were here last week, it was phenomenal. But then you kind of wake up the next morning and you know it's, well, now what? You know, we did it. It's done. And we forget that, and I'm going to quote uh, Bishop N.T. Wright --We forget that Easter Day is not simply the happy ending after the sad and dark story of Holy Week. Easter is the start of something. It isn't the ending. It is the beginning of new creation that's been made possible by the overcoming of the forces of corruption and decay and the death of Jesus. Easter is the beginning of new creation, the beginning of the life to come. And that's the emphasis of our text from this morning in John, and that's what we're going to be really drilling down into. So, I've got two points for us about this idea of new creation, okay? First one is the peace of God, the peace of God. And the second point is the breath of God. Two points, peace of God and breath of God. All right, let's dive into our text. As you just heard in our gospel, it's the evening of Easter day, the evening of the morning of Jesus' resurrection. Father Rodriguez spoke last week about uh, Mary's uh, encounter with Jesus, and that's already happened, right? Um, Mary went to the tomb to see Jesus that morning. She reported that he was gone. So then Peter and John run, and I love John's gospel, right? He's like, you know, know, I made it there first, but that's fine. Um, John makes it there first. They both look in. John believes, but he doesn't, you know, announce his belief. Peter's not so sure. They go back and report in. You know, we didn't really see much. Mary encounters Jesus. You know, I've seen the Lord. She reports back to the room. Again, they're all gathered in this upper room at night. And then also, which we'll talk about in a couple weeks, there's two disciples that are on the road to Emmaus, and they encounter Jesus in the breaking of the bread. We talked about that on Monday, Thursday for a second. And they're all reporting back at the same time. We see that in Luke. And so you see them trapped in themselves, locked themselves in this upper room. There's all this tumult about all these reports coming in about whether or not Jesus is raised, one of those things, it's just, you know, it's, it's hard to believe unless you see it, all this confusion, and, you know, they're all still huddled together in fear and anxiety and confusion. And it's really no wonder that they would be huddling in fear and confusion, right? Their leader was dead. The plans that they had made, the life that they thought they, they were creating was unraveling before them, irre- irrevocably so. I mean, you have to think about it. These men left everything behind, their careers, their lives, everything to follow Jesus for three years, and so now they no longer have their leader, and they no longer have what they left behind. They are destitute. They've got nothing. And not only that, they're experiencing some genuine pangs of loss, right? And for those of you who've experienced significant loss, you know a little bit about what they're going through. There's this thread when you're genuinely grieving, and you can be leaving you can be grieving. You know, there's a lot of things that we lose as we, as we go throughout life, and, and there's a lot of um, strands of grief that we come across, and, and it can be a loss of a loved one, it can be a loss like the disciples had of the life that they thought they were going to have, and that's gone from them now. There's even a loss of a sense of self. Have you ever been in a situation where you thought you were someone? and it was proven different to you. And it was devastating because you were not who you thought you were. And so the disciples are going through all of these things, all of these senses of grief, and on top of of a sense of loss and of grief, in grief there is this subtle undercurrent of feelings of betrayal, a feeling that life or God or someone else owed you something more, something more than you've received out of it. And then when you really dive into loss and you sit in grief for a little while longer, you start to have this creeping realization that maybe the betrayer is you. Perhaps it was your naivete and your expectations that you thought life would be better. Maybe you believed that you could have done more or been more. Perhaps you start to wonder, was I an unwitting victim or was I complicit in my loss? Did I do something to lead to this? So you think about the position of the disciples. Judas Iscariot was not the only disciple to betray Jesus, was he? The one who sold him for 30 pieces of silver. I was thinking about that actually this week. You know, been walking the stations every week during Lent, and there's this one station where we get to, right? And, and they lay the cross on a man. They conscript, really, a man from Simon, you know, a man named Simon of Cyrene. You familiar with that? Where were the disciples? Why, why weren't they there to pick up that burden of the cross and, and, and carry it for Jesus? Where, where were they? In his moment of dire need, they weren't there. So they all betrayed Jesus, and Peter especially so. Remember, he, did, he denied Jesus three times in a single night. You sound like a Galilean. Aren't you with him? I don't, never seen him, don't know him, not me. As Jesus himself had warned of what came to be true, strike the shepherd and the flock will scatter, and scatter they did. So the disciples had much to grieve, and losses that significant of a loved one, of an imagined future, of a sense of self, leads to this twisting of your insides and an inversion of your entire world. And so it's into this confusion and turmoil that we see in our text that Jesus appears, and what does he say? Peace be with you peace be with you. He says it twice, almost to emphasize the point. Now, he's not just greeting them, right? You know, Jesus doesn't show up in this, all this confusion, you know, hey guys, like, you know, it's not a a peace. It's not even like a, uh, you know, like, you're somebody chill out or calm down, like, hey guys, peace be with you, like, ease up. It's, it's nothing like that. What Jesus is saying is he's actually imparting peace to them. He is giving them peace. He is declaring peace over them. And he's doing something significant that you might miss if you haven't read through the whole gospel. Um, he's reminding them of a promise that he had made on the night that he was betrayed and handed over to death. Because in the very night before he went to death, he was also gathered in an upper room with the disciples as he was now. This is in John 14, and he said to them, He promised them on that very night, He said, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. I will leave you with the Holy Spirit, and I will impart to you God's peace. He promised those things just a few short days ago, and so now He is here with them reminding them, peace be with you. I'm fulfilling my promise to you. And so when you think about the peace of God, it's something that's absolutely loaded with meaning. It's so deep and profound and effectual. God's sense of peace. Peace that's not dependent on our circumstances. Peace that's not dependent on our own abilities, our own endeavors, our own strength. It's His peace that He gives to us. God's peace is also an answer to every existential crisis you've ever had. You ever have, Anybody have an existential crisis? Like, what if there's nothing after this life? Anybody ever sit in that for a little while? That's fun, right? How about this crisis? This is one that we all go through too. What if I can never change? What if I just stuck the way that I am? That's a fun one. How about this one? What if I can never do enough or be enough? What if what, if, what, if what I'm aiming for is going to forever be outside of my, my grasp? It's a neat little crisis to turn your world inside out. But this peace of God is an answer to all of those existential crises that we go through, isn't it? Because when Christ comes in, He says, peace be with you. There is more after this, and I've come back to tell that to you. Peace be with you. Even if you are not enough for yourself, I am and have done for you what you could never do for yourself, and peace be with you. You're worried about changing or becoming better, stronger, whatever it is that you feel that you lack. Let the Holy Spirit do its work in you. Peace be with you. It's powerful and effectual. It's both a status— as in you're no longer in open warfare against God. That's kind of a relief. But it's also this inner sense of calm that God gives to us. It's a feeling knowing that you can face any amount of opposition or persecution or circumstances in this life because you know how the story ends. It's a stabilizing peace that God uses as a foundation for us because when you are grieving, when you've experienced loss or betrayal, the bottom has fallen out of your world and you are falling down a rabbit hole like Alice in Wonderland, right? Like you're just spinning, And what the peace of God does is it lays that firm foundation that allows your feet to stand firm on His rock and His promises. The peace of God so that you can begin having Him work in you to rebuild your life. Y'all follow me on that. The peace of God. Which brings us to our second point. The breath of God. Looking at our text, after announcing God's peace, look at what Jesus does next. He breathes on the disciples and He gives them the Holy Spirit. And I don't want us to miss the significance of this, because what Jesus is doing by breathing on them is he's enacting new creation, a recreation of what God did in the very beginning of Genesis with Adam, right? What does God do to form Adam? Genesis 2. You remember what he does? Takes the dust of the earth, right? And then what does he do? He breathes life into the nostrils of Adam, that's what Christ is doing in imparting the Holy Spirit. He is giving them new life. He is recreating them. And our, our lectionary demonstrates this change really well today, by the way, the new life that the disciples walk into. Do you remember our first reading in Acts chapter 5 that we heard a few minutes ago? What was Acts chapter 5 about? Well, Acts chapter 5, while in our text we have the disciples huddling in fear and locked doors and afraid of religious authorities and afraid of persecution, afraid of oppression, what do we see in Acts 5? What are they doing? They're out proclaiming the risen Christ. They're called up before the very authorities that they were worried about, right? And I love it. Peter's response to them, he says, you know, hey, we must obey God rather than men. And then he actually kind of puts a little thumb in their eye, right? Because he's like, you know, Jesus, who you killed, by the way? That's bold, right? He's like, by the way, this was your fault. What, you know, what are you going to do? About it? That's my paraphrase. What are you going to do about it? Peter is standing firm because he's been recreated. He's got this new life in him. The disciples were recreated through the Holy Spirit. And it's the same Holy Spirit that is given to us, by the way, through faith and through our baptism. Because that's what baptism is, right? It's a dying to self and a rebirth Rebirth, recreation in Christ. Here's a piece of Bible trivia. You ready? How many sides does the traditional baptismal font have? If you were an adult form, you don't get to answer. That's cheating. I already told you. Eight. Eight sides. Ours, You can look at it on your way out. Our eight sides are actually at the bottom, at the foundation, not at the top. Top's a circle. Bottom is eight sides. Why eight? Because eight is the number in Scripture of new creation. Seven days of creation. What's the eighth day? New creation, recreation. It's a gift all of us have in our baptism, this new creation. And speaking of the significance of this number eight, there's one disciple who isn't present in the room, right? We know him as, it's super unfair, doubting Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas isn't present. Now, it's unfair for a couple reasons. One, we don't call him denying Peter, right? He gets off the hook. Two, I don't think any of us would want to be known for our worst sin, right? Like our worst flaw. But Thomas isn't present until the eighth day. Now, we don't know where he was. And there's a strong case to be made that he missed seeing Jesus because he neglected, you know, the gathering together on the Lord's Day that everyone does. That's a pitch, by the way, for coming to church. Um, He neglected that gathering. But, you know, Thomas was missed. He wasn't present. He didn't experience Jesus. And so when he sees the other disciples, what's his response? We read it just a second ago, right? He says, unless I see the mark in his hands, right, and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will, what, never believe. Now, that's strong language, right? I will never believe. It's not convince me, show me some more evidence. Like, I'd like to, you know, it's just like, like, like no, it's not, it's not happening unless I see Christ in person in the flesh and I touch him. And by the way, that word for place isn't like a gentle, like, placement. It's actually the word in Greek, ekbalo, and it means to shove. So what he's saying is unless I shove my finger into those nails, I'm not going to believe. It's pretty offensive stuff. I mean, that's some strong language. It's a hard line. And we talk about Thomas. Is he a skeptic? You know any of those? Is he a cynic? Is he just obstinate? Whatever it is, he's throwing down the gauntlet, and he's saying, prove it. Shaking his fist at the heavens and challenging God, never believe until the eighth day until the day of new creation, until, as we saw in our text, Jesus Christ in his mercy and his grace appears to Thomas in the flesh, and he does what to him? He offers him his nail-scarred hands, and he offers him his side. And there's something in here that I don't want to miss, how Jesus acts on us in mercy and makes us new creation. He answers Thomas according to Thomas's greatest weakness, according to his greatest sin, According to his greatest flaw, that is the place that Jesus meets Thomas. And he confronts that flaw, and he offers Thomas what? Grace and forgiveness. Now, you, Maybe you've experienced this from an especially person, per, graceful person who has seen the depths of your sin and called you out on it and offered love and forgiveness and support anyway. That's just a taste of what God offers us and how He heals us. And Thomas the skeptic, Thomas the doubter, offers the greatest proclamation of of Christ's divine nature in all of Scripture. Thomas, the one who doubts, becomes Thomas the believer, and he says what? My Lord and my God. That's the strongest proclamation in Scripture of Jesus' divinity. It doesn't get stronger than that. Thomas the doubter becomes Thomas the believer in the strongest sense. And Jesus does the same thing over and over again. What does he do with Peter? Peter did what? Denied him three times? How does God answer Peter? How does Jesus address it with him? He gives him three opportunities to declare his love for him before sending him out to do the work he has given him to do. Where does God need to meet you in this season of Easter? What are those areas that you have that are either your greatest sins or your greatest failings or your greatest missed, missed opportunities or misplacement of how you are to be built up as a person? Where does God need to meet you? We've all got them. I mean, this whole season of Lent was a time of searching out what those places were, but now we're in Eastertide. Now we're in the season of resurrection. Now we're in the season of new creation, of bringing before the throne those things in our lives that we need God to address. I started with this greeting of Christos Anesti, right? Christos Anesti, Christ is risen. In the Greek, this word for resurrection comes from anastasis, which is literally a standing up. So when we reflect this Easter and we walk into the season of resurrection together for the next 40 days, I want us to consider what what moments, what ways is Christ calling us to a standing up? an anastasis, a living of new life in Him. The resurrection is not the end of the story, it is the new beginning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, You are gracious in the way that You treat us, in the way that You not only answer us according to our doubt, but You actually recreate us by the power of Your Holy Spirit to become the people who can walk out into your creation, to work alongside you, and to build up your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. God, I pray that you would help us to investigate those parts of our lives, be it doubt as it was for Thomas, be it cowardice as it was for Peter and the other disciples, but those areas in our lives that we can bring before your heavenly throne for healing, that you may have us stand up in the resurrected life that you have called us to. In your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.